0: Hey guys, when you search for Bible-related stuff, virtually all the results are from Christian pastors and apologists.
1: Yeah, to find real biblical criticism, you need to dig down. Most people never even learn about all the scholarship out there, which debunks a lot of the evangelical claims.
0: Yeah, there's an entire well-funded industry of biased Christian content out there.
1: Our show tries to offer a counter-argument to them, but we rely on our listeners to keep the show going week after week. If you'd like to support the show, please check out our Patreon at www.patreon.com slash SkepticsBibleProject.
0: Thank you to all those supporting us. We hope you enjoy the show. I'm John. And I'm Ben. And this is the Skeptics Bible Project. We read the Bible
1: so you don't have to.
0: I don't care too much for preachers. I don't like to go to church. But I'd hate to meet St. Peter when my body leaves this earth. Hello and welcome to the show. This is the Skeptic's Bible Project. Happy to be here with you again. How are you, Ben? I'm doing well, John. How are you? I'm doing great. So, Ben, the last few weeks have been pretty interesting in, uh, in the New Testament Studies universe. There's been a new manuscript revealed, and they've um, come out with
1: the findings. Can you tell us a little bit about it? Sure. So this is um, the Egyptian Exploration Society, um, and this is the published of the Oxyrhynchus papyri. I always said Oxyrhynchus, but I don't know. Oxyrhynchus, that's probably right. So this was actually discovered in the 1880s, in Egypt, but there were so many of these texts that they discovered that they're still slowly going through them. It was like a t- giant uh, tr- ancient trash dump,
0: so uh, it was they're, they're from roughly the first century.
1: So they range, I think, all the way back from um, the third century BCE. Oh, wow! Um, up till maybe the 3rd or 4th century CE. There's like a really wide range of ages. So I think it's taking a very long time to go through and catalog these. And um, this particular papyri was involved in um, a theft and then was sold to um, the Green family who are uh, affiliated with Hobby Lobby and the uh, Museum of the Bible. Another long tangent, uh, tangential... uh, part of the story. Um, But they found this papyri. This is number 5573. Um, The first papyri was actually uh, appeared in 1898. So this has been like a um, multi-generational project to get these papyri pieces uh, translated. And initially, this was reported to be uh, part of the Gospel of Matthew. Um. But now as scholars like just last week, um, the scholars that are doing the translating came out with the uh, like started showing other scholars their work and came out with their initial dating and um, some more information about the papyri. So it's dated from the second century, probably second century um maybe early 3rd century. And the way that they did that was by examining the style of the lettering, um, which is not the most precise way to date a document, but that's the first step. Um, And so if it's a 2nd century document, um, it's one of the oldest um, Christian texts that we have. And the thing that makes this really interesting from my perspective Um, and I think, John, you would agree, is that it contains sayings um, that are sort of topical um, and have to do with, like, worry and anxiety, but they're sayings that exist in um, forms that are found in Matthew, in Luke, and also the Gospel of Thomas. So you have um, a combination of sayings from different gospels, including a non-canonical gospel, the Gospel of Thomas. Um,
0: so I think it's it's worth saying that um, we have almost nothing from this era of Christianity. There's just fragments. Um, so if this truly is a, a mid-second century document, as it seems like most scholars are saying it is, uh, it really is one of the biggest finds in New Testament studies uh, in centuries. And um, so it's quite amazing. And yeah, the fact that it seems to be a group of sayings, um, you know, it goes along with this idea that maybe some of the first Gospels that were being spread around were just sayings of Jesus with no narratives at all. This is what the go- exactly what the Gospel of Thomas is, and it's what the hypothesized Gospel of Q is, I think there's a little bit of a controversy in that um, some of the people and i don't know all the details of this but some of the people involved with the study are evangelicals and were kind of promoting this as oh this will bolster the conservative view of the uh, manuscript tradition because it's basically a segment of matthew which shows that there was a consistency from the earliest followers of jesus to what we have now with keeping an organized account of the words of Jesus, uh, and the Gospel of Matthew has been um, established like a stone from the beginning and unchanging. But as it's been revealed and published, we find that's not the case at all. This is a group of different sayings that are not consistent with any one Gospel, and in fact has sections from the Gospel of Thomas in it, which, you know, most modern Christians want to basically throw out or ignore. So anyway, that's what's interesting to me. I mean, what I want to hear more from scholars about is the implications of especially the Gospel of Thomas. It's likely that these sayings that we find in Thomas existed um, extremely early, which may bolster this idea that Thomas itself was a very early text.
1: Yeah, it's funny because they're sort of like a dual movement, Because on the one hand, it would be good for Christianity to date this text early um, for some reasons. Um, But they also have reasons to want to date it later, and that's because of the inclusion of the Gospel of Thomas. (laughs) So the scholars that think the Gospel of Thomas is early still usually only date it to maybe like the mid-2nd century Um, and most, a lot of scholars would probably put it into the 3rd century. Now this really, if this is from the 2nd century, obviously the Gospel of Thomas, um, those sayings were around before the 3rd century. So it really puts to rest this notion that the Gospel of Thomas is late. The earliest fragment we have right now is from um, the Gospel of John, I believe, and it's from 140 C.E., Um, which would be the second century. So this could be contemporaneous with that, which would make it, you know, I mean, if this is before 140, then this is the oldest fragment that we have. And um, it's one of the oldest fragments that we have if it's from the first century. So,
0: yeah, I want to jump in and say, um, there are scholars that date Thomas as early as 50. Um, I know
1: some, I know like John Crossan, I think, believes that Thomas is earlier than the gospels the synoptics so there's, there's like there definitely is that um
0: and there's re- there's good reason to think uh, the- he's not the only one there are uh i think you're right the majority view is that um, Thomas comes from, you know, second century, possibly third century, but there are, there is a significant number of scholars that put it very early, and there's some good reason for that. Some of the sayings of Jesus that we 1st of all, it's a sayings gospel, which were kind of um, out of style by the second and third century, it seems like, and um, like it seems like the sayings gospels likely preceded the canonical gospels the narrative style gospels so that's a reason to think it could be early but also some of the sayings that are they put on jesus lips in the gospel of thomas seem to be a more archaic like a a simpler earlier version of the saying um, which has led many to believe that the version of Thomas that we have now may be like a later version of the text, where there was an earlier version and then it, it changed over time, which is certainly possible. Um, so it's, you know, like everything with New Testament studies, it's complicated. But um, for those of you interested in it, it's endlessly fascinating. And you can you can spend uh, just hours going down every rabbit hole in the world. Uh, but yeah, I'm I'm really anxious to hear... Scholars talk about the implications of this. So far, it's mostly been r- kind of reporting what the findings are, what the text says, and the the possible dating. But I'm I'm interested to kind of hear their takes on the implications of it. What what does it what does it mean in the long run?
1: Yeah, um, I did a I was on a TikTok with Candida Moss, um, and she was talking a little bit about. Um, she actually was one of the first people from outside the initial group. Um, to have access to seeing a copy of the text. And <clears throat> she basically said the same thing. I mean, it makes the um, conventional uh, accepted dating of the Gospel of Thomas as like, it it creates a problem for dating the Gospel of Thomas in the third century as a Gnostic text. So it pushes it forward in some people's mind. Um, it also shows that the Gospel of Thomas was considered canonical in some sense, or you know, was included along with other uh, quotes from the Gospels. Um, and then the other thing that's interesting is a lot of the phrasing um, of the sayings or is is very inconsistent. Like not consistently Matthew, not consistently Luke, um, which she said thinks uh, indicates that the scribe. Was not as concerned with um, like carefully copying the text. So again, I mean, that's something we hear from evangelicals all the time that these scribes were fanatically uh, careful to make sure that they copied the text perfectly and preserved the word. It doesn't seem from this fragment that that's the case, and I also just think that it's interesting because it creates sort of another type of literature that must have been going around in the early church at that time, um, where there were sayings collected into some sort of thematic. Um, so you have these, like, texts that deal with anxiety. Um, so I wonder about the larger text that it was part of or if this was something that was, like, what was this used for? Was this just another form of literature? Um, yeah, so I think it's got a lot of interesting layers and um, scholars are super excited about it. And um, and again, it's, it's just one of the... If the dating is correct so far, um, then this could be one of the oldest pieces of Christian literature that we actually have a copy of.
0: So on this show, we'll keep you guys updated with anything we find out, and um, it's something that we're definitely going to continue to talk about as we go forward. But um, today we wanted to talk about pseudepigrapha, or as it's also known, forgeries. So in the ancient world... In order to get your writing more attention and have more authority, oftentimes an author might lie and claim that they were a prominent figure in order to gain uh, traction, in order to gain attention. So we have this um, that both you know Christians and non-Christian scholars will agree with that you have uh, letters in the name of Paul that Paul didn't actually write, letters in the name of Peter that um peter didn't actually write and um we can go through some of those there's the epistle of barnabas there's we all know about first and second corinthians in the bible but there's a third corinthians um, that we have and we can you can go and read it um but but scholars have long known that these are forgeries or pseudepigrapha they are not written by the person who claims to be writing it um but the question for us is is there any books in our canonical bibles the bibles that you can pick up and read in church are there any books in there that were that are forgeries that are written by someone other than who they claim to be now we have to make a distinction because there's also um, false attribution so uh, let's take the gospel of matthew mark and luke now these aren't forgeries we we have no idea who wrote matthew mark and luke and the title matthew mark and luke were added centuries later so the original gospels likely circulated totally anonymously Um, so we have no idea who the author is so those aren't forgeries they're just they're people made this attribution to them much later maybe they're right maybe they're wrong but then you have books like uh first and second peter where the author says hey i'm peter and you should listen to me and you have the Epistles of Paul, which makes up the majority of the New Testament, that says, I, Paul, am writing this to you, so you should listen to me. And are any of those books forgeries? Well, as it turns out, scholars for a long time now have said, yes, as a matter of fact, some of them are forgeries. Some of them are pseudepigrapha. So we thought it would be an important series to do, because we've talked about this a lot on previous episodes, but we thought taking a deep dive into this and Go through the books individually and talk about uh, why scholars think this is a forgery, or maybe why scholars think this is not a forgery. Some of them are debated, and some of them are really not very debated. Um, So if it's okay with you, Ben, I thought maybe we would start with um, Ephesians, Colossians, which are epistles from the Apostle Paul, allegedly. And um, they've circulated in the Church for centuries, for millennia. Um, as authoritative words from the Apostle Paul, but many scholars believe that Paul didn't actually write these letters. And I know Ephesians, Colossians are are much more debated than some of the other books, which we'll talk about in the future. Um, But why, Ben, is Ephesians and Colossians kind of always grouped together uh, when people discuss them?
1: That's a very good question. Um, So the letters of Ephesians and Colossians seem to have a relationship with each other. They have a lot of uh, words and phrases that are in common. Um, And uh, most scholars or a lot of scholars think that the author of Ephesians probably used Colossians as one of the sources there are different um, theological ideas that are in agreement in Ephesians and Colossians that are um, stand in contrast to some of the undisputed Pauline letters, and we can talk about that um, in a minute. Um, there's also um, household codes in both of the books that seem very similar and follow each other um, pretty closely. So there's some good reasons— um, Based on this, to uh, sort of lump these two letters together?
0: Yeah, my understanding is that um, a lot of it has to do with specificity. Paul talks about in his letters to other churches, he seems intimately uh, knowledgeable about what's going on in those churches, and he's writing about very specific problems. And when you read through Ephesians, for instance, it's very general where it's it's more broad not not talking to specific issues going on and as we go through these we'll be learning a little bit about like what criteria scholars use to make these determinations so one is stylistic differences in ephesians the terminology that and phrases that paul uses seems different from his authentic letters um he like his sentences are much more complex in Ephesians and also really long intricate sentences with uh, like deep theological content and um, I know FF. F. Bruce points that out and uh, another uh, biblical scho- prominent biblical scholar and um, so that's a that's a very common technique that um, scholars will use. Uh, another is the theological development um, is is Paul's theological philosophy or the, are the concepts that he's using the same that he's used elsewhere or are they novel? And it seems in Ephesians, um, they seem to be novel. They seem to be, Oh, like Paul is emphasizing something that he hasn't emphasized before, or, or maybe even, um, talking about, you know, things that seem to contradict what he said in other letters, the stru- the church structure, this is important. So this is like a, a historical criteria that, scholars will use. Are there any anachronisms in it? And it, an and anachronism is when um, a writer is pretending to be writing from an earlier uh, point in time than he is actually living in. So an anachronism would be like if if uh, if the Apostle Paul was talking about using ChatGPT. That would be an anachronism, because ChatGPT didn't exist in the days of Paul. But what we find in Ephesians, and I think in Colossians, is what seems to be like a more... Organized hierarchical church structure um, than existed in the actual time of Paul. Like when you read in First Corinthians, for instance, a genuine letter of Paul, or in Romans, it really seems like groups of people meeting in houses, um, and there wasn't a like a high uh, church structure. But in Ephesians, it seems to hint at a much more organized hierarchical church structure. And we can go through some of those examples. When you get to the pastoral epistles, first second Timothy and Titus, you have a much higher version of the church with you know, elders and deacons and um and that's that's one of the primary reasons that scholars have said no. First and second Timothy and, and Titus are written much later, not not by Paul. Uh Ephesians though and Colossians are a little bit more debatable for some of these reasons that I'm talking about. Ben talked a little bit about ethical and household codes um again they seem more general uh as opposed to specific guidance that Paul provides in his other letters unclear historical context so again with historical context ephesians lacks specific references to historical events and so it's really challenging to pinpoint its its historical context um and and the and the ambiguity of the audience it's hard to determine the precise audience and the pr- purpose of ephesians Um, so where that's not hard to figure out at all when you read something like Romans. And then I think most damning, um, for authentic, um, authorship of Paul is the manuscript evidence. There's just very little early manuscript evidence, uh, of Ephesians. What we have, we only have a small number of early manuscripts. Um, in other words, it wasn't widespread in the early church. And why is that when the other letters clearly were? And it, it was not included on many early lists of uh, Paul's letters. So early church fathers would make a list of, like, these are Paul's letters. And, and Ephesians is notably absent
1: from uh, many of those lists. I think that Ephesians and Colossians, I know that Bart Ehrman um, emphasizes in his book that um, reading... Uh, both Ephesians and Colossians in the Greek, you really get a sense of how long the sentences are and a lot of times those sentences are even shortened in English um, and that's just not the way that Paul wrote um, so it's another example of why these two books are similar and um, why they're sort of dissimilar to the uh, authentic letters of Paul now of course like someone could write in a different style um, people do that Um but there are like linguistic techniques that people use, and people that are professional. And um, I know that Ehrman likes to use the example of, um, you know, if you put a Hemingway quote in the middle of a book by um, James Joyce you're going to realize that it's some different author has all of a sudden been inserted. Um, There's just a different style um, to your writing, even if you change up um, some of your content. Um, One of the things that I find most interesting, where Colossians and Ephesians agree, is about the timing of um, when believers are risen with Christ. So for Paul, um, one of the big distinctions he makes in Corinth is about how believers have died in Christ or died along with Christ um, and they will be risen with Christ in the future. Um, They will be saved in the future um, when Christ returns. That is completely shifted in Ephesians and Colossians, like we're already raised with Christ. Um, And so I think it reflects a different understanding. We're already seeing, John and I always like to emphasize, this sort of early expectation of Christ's return in the church um, that they thought it was going to happen in their lifetime, they thought it was going to happen any time. Now Paul, um, the authentic Paul is writing in sort of that wrinkle in time before the end um, where um, he's sort of at an impasse in history and um, Paul is not, the, the real Paul is not concerned um, he's much less concerned with like the present age that's fading away and everything is always happening in the future. So for the real Paul to say that we're going to be risen in the future, well, he's looking at an imp- a future that is coming soon. Um, it's an expectant hope that he sees, like, right on the horizon. Um, in Ephesians and Colossians, um, it's been pushed forward so that we're already saved, we're already risen, and it's sort of like a hunkering down um, for, the, uh, for the time being. Um, so it has, like, a longer view of Earth and less of an expectant view of the return of Christ.
0: Yeah, that's a pretty stark. That's a pretty stark um, difference between the genuine letters of Paul and what you find in Ephesians and Colossians. Because you're right, um, that like we emphasize all the time, uh, this this imminent return of Christ was just permeates the genuine letters of Paul. This is what uh, the. People he's writing to were expecting because this is in the lifetime of some of the original followers. This is what they believed was the promise coming from Jesus. This was their big hope, and you start sh- seeing a shift away from the, the uh, you know the eminent the imminent return of Jesus and more toward the kind of long term holding fast. Uh, what's our Christian lifestyle going out into the future going to look like? And um, I think that's a pretty big. Uh, Shift and a pretty big reason to think that, hey, this is probably written at a later date here.
1: Yeah, and like, I mean, like in a practicality. So I think that the best thing to do is to try to kind of read uh, Galatians and 1 Corinthians against um, Colossians and Ephesians, because the whole tirade against the Corinthian church was that they were saying they were already risen with Christ. Like, we're already living... (laughs) Um, in spiritual resurrection with Christ, we can do whatever we want. And Paul is like, no, you're wrong. You're not risen with Christ yet. Um, and now Paul is saying, yeah, we're all risen with Christ. We're already saved. So it's like giving a, like the, exactly the opposite message that Paul is telling the Corinthian church. And so you say, okay, maybe Paul changed his mind. Maybe Paul came to a different view. Okay, that's possible. Um, and then the other thing is like the even more practical level of the household cult codes. Um we have and this like gets exasperated further in the pastoral epistles which we'll talk about another time probably. Um but you know you have this uh setting down of this is how families should be regulated. So, you know, slaves obey your masters and husbands obey uh wives obey you submit to your husbands and husbands love your wives and um you know children obey your parents and um this is like not paul is basically talking about living in the time um like living as if uh none of these roles matter anymore like in galatians that's his whole thing um so now all of a sudden he's setting up these like sort of social hierarchies and social structures it just really goes and runs against um the message of the authentic paul and I think a lot of the other reasons are convincing, but for me, like these theological problems are a lot harder to resolve. um, Because you're talking about like a pretty essential parts of the genuine Paul's message. And this is what I think like becomes a a real problem is reading Ephesians. Like I know we've talked about, I don't know if you mentioned FF Bruce um, this time, but I think FF Bruce, um, reads Ephesians as like the central Pauline epistle. So he uses that to interpret all the genuine undisputed Pauline epistles. And once you do that, you're already, you're shifted away from what Paul is saying. And you're allowing this sort of reinterpretation to, um, to cloud your, the way that you read the, the initial Paul. Um, so I see this happen a lot. I mean, I saw this, this is a little bit of a tangent, but like the gospel coalition, which was Tim Keller's organization, this guy had written a book about, uh, (laughs) the church as the bride of Christ. And it had all this like, sort of like misogynistic language and it ended up creating all this controversy and like, he almost exclusively, um, drew from, Ephesians and Colossians and he used Ephesians and Colossians to reinterpret Paul's teachings about singleness in Corinthians. So it's like at a certain point, you're just missing the message of like the real Paul by trying to interpret him through these later interpolations.
0: Yeah. And I think Ephesians and Colossians is a little bit difficult because it's kind of hard to figure out the purpose of the author. Um like why the author would be writing in the name of Paul what is he changing that Paul hasn't already said? this is very clear when you read the pastoral epistles like I mentioned before about what what this author is trying to do. this author is clearly shifting <laughs> he wants he wants authority in the church away from women um he and and we'll get into that as we go through uh the pastoral epistles in a future episode but um but with Ephesians, it's not quite as clear, so that's that's what scholars look at. Now, I have a few quotes here from some, some scholars. I want to go through some of them. I don't know who all of these scholars are, Ben. You might know some of them more than me. Uh, Raymond Brown is on here, and I, I certainly know him. But um, C.K. Barrett says, The language of Ephesians is the most classical Greek in the New Testament. Its vocabulary is vast, and many of its phrases are unique in the Pauline corpus. So that goes to what we're saying, like, why is this author using words and phrases that Paul doesn't use anywhere else? Um, I know when we get to Second Peter, we're going to talk about um, some of the words were not even in circulation at the time the Apostle Peter was living. Um, so that's a very big clue that it was written long after uh, the, the real Peter was dead. But in Ephesians, we see a little bit of that also. Um, Raymond Brown, who is uh, one of my favorites says catholic um, theologian and scholar he says ephesians therefore could not have been written by paul even though it uses words that were in paul's vocabulary the concepts expressed in this letter are more developed than those found in his undoubtedly authentic writings so that's interesting he's talking about his kind of theological concepts and um and how it seems to be like a more developed version of it which makes sense if it was written after the life of Paul. Um, Harold Honer says, the absence of personal references and local situations make it difficult to harmonize with Paul's other letters. The theological and ecclesiastical differences between Ephesians and the undisputed Pauline letters are striking. Um, So that's interesting. Uh, We talked a little bit about that before. Marcus Barth, says, Ephesians stands apart from the rest of Paul's letters in that it lacks a clear historical context. This ambiguity raises questions about its authorship. Um, Just a couple more. Andrew Lincoln, the audience and purpose of Ephesians remains uncertain, making it challenging to establish its authenticity as a Pauline letter. And then it wouldn't be an episode of our show if we didn't quote Bart Ehrman, who says, It's possible that Ephesians was written by a later Christian leader who admired Paul's theology, but was not the apostle himself.
1: Yeah, so I think that I agree with almost all of that, or most of it. Um, I think Raymond Brown talks about Ephesians. Um, There's a theory that the letter was passed along to churches without any specific geographical address and um it could be you know like it could be given to this church um i think that he even says that marcion may have had it as the letter to the Laotians. not sure um so i may be wrong about that um but you can email us if i am Uh, uh But I think that that's... He said there's not really a lot of historical evidence um, in the ancient world of letters going around like that where they don't have an addressee and they're just kind of like shared by communities, but that's a possibility. Um, I think the interesting thing is Colossi was actually... I think that's how you pronounce the name of the city. Again, send all complaints to emails if I'm getting it wrong. Um, Was actually destroyed in an earthquake in 61 CE, they think. So like for it to be a genuine letter to a Christian community there, it has to date before 61 um, because the city was destroyed. And so that gives it a really, that's like a tight timeline. Um, I mean, I guess it's fine because um, you don't have Paul living that long into the 60s anyway, probably. Um, But it, it makes it very close to the other letters of Paul that we can compare it to. Um, as far as um, like language and theologically developed ideas, and um, it does seem to not be in step with those other letters that we would put as contemporaneous. So let me um, jump in
0: for, let me ask you a question, Ben. Paul, according to Christians, was writing under the direct inspiration of God, correct?
1: That is the evangelical position.
0: And you're telling me that Colossae, the city, was destroyed in something like 61 AD. Yes. And Paul's writing them a letter basically coming from God. Wouldn't it be nice if there was a little bit of a warning like, hey, guys, get out of the city?
1: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, again, I think that um, so a lot of what a lot of people think is that the author of Colossians had Ephesians Um And maybe also had Philemon um, and were using those letters to try to construct a letter that uh, seemed like Paul. But because um, he was using a forged letter, uh, it ends up sounding a lot like Ephesians. Um, And that Colossae may have been a place that was, um, at this point, like i think the the theory is not that the letter is going to be sent to the colossian ch- the church coloss colossian church in order to fool them but that it's supposed to fool other people that it was a letter to that community and maybe like the again the fact that it was destroyed in 61 um makes it easier to um there's not necessarily people in that community to say this is a fake letter um, i mean the letter
0: talks a lot about um you know watching out for false teachers and false philosophies. But I think if it said, like, watch out for your whole city being destroyed, it may have been more beneficial to them in the long run.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's totally a fair point, um, especially when you think that this letter would have to be arriving pretty close to that time. So, you know, if it comes to you in 55, if it says in six years there's going to be a gigantic earthquake that destroys your city,
0: and I'm just saying that would have been helpful information
1: you would think that that
0: would be helpful, <laughs> <That> <laughs> but um, is, I mean, I'm uh, being cynical, but uh I think there is a point there. um Let me quote some some scholars that think it is genuine or at least arguing more for the genuineness so we we mentioned f. f. Bruce before uh he says uh this is talking about Ephesians. The letter's credentials indeed are impressive, and its right to a place in the New Testament canon has never been seriously challenged, although doubts have been raised from time to time. So for me, this is saying like, well, the church has traditionally kept it in the canon, so that alone is reason that we can accept it as genuine. And you kind of hear variations of that argument a lot, um, even to this day. And um, to me, that's not very convincing, because I think the whole point is to um, kind of look at church tradition and see where maybe they've gotten it wrong.
1: Yeah, I think this is like a really problematic position. Um, like, once you start examining canonization as a concept, it's it gets extremely dicey to nail down when there was actually an established canon. There's, like, never a church council that decides until, I think, the 1300s. So it's all, there are different people saying this is the canon or don't use these books anymore or church fathers that emphasize this. But we have a variety of canons. And in uh, the 1500s, when Martin Luther was questioning having the Reformation, one of the fundamental things that he questioned was the canon. Um, And, and re like, you know, he wanted to put James as an appendix. He was not sure about the book of Revelation. So things were an open question for Martin Luther. I think, like, we shouldn't be closed off to examining these books from a really critical perspective to say that if it's a book that Paul didn't write, we shouldn't just say, well, at this point, it confirms Christian theology. And so, therefore, It doesn't really matter if paul wrote it or paul didn't write it we've accepted it as being pauline so it must be pauline i mean that's like a very circular logic that doesn't actually tell you who wrote the letter it just tells you that you want to keep it in the book and um you don't really want to take a critical look at it
0: yeah it's complicated i mean i have a little bit of sympathy for that because if you're saying like look like what we think of as pauline canon we're we're not even claiming it goes back to the actual paul as much as the tradition of the pauline canon if if christians held that view i think that's like a little bit more of a liberal view to be like well uh, we're just talking about what the church has traditionally said and we're not even really addressing the authorship but that's not what the evangelical church in america does conservative christians they say no like if like if it's in the canon it means paul actually wrote it and um i think the genuine apostle paul the historical apostle paul would be not happy that there were books circulated in his name you know for thousands of years after he's been gone that he didn't write and he likely disagrees with some of Um, but that's just my
1: two cents yeah no i mean i totally agree i think that um and i i just want to problematize tradition um, because what tradition are you holding to? Like, again, I, I just think that that's like, that that's, uh, like evangelicals would say it's sola scriptura or reformed people would say it's sola scriptura, but evangelicals basically would say like, we get our ideas from the Bible. And so, um, you're having some confidence at some point in time that the Bible is the inspired word of God, but What I'm saying is I don't understand when that starts because when do you finally decide these are the books of the Bible that are the inspired Word of God? That's a historical claim that's made in a historical time. And I think when they trace back the history, it gets really dicey, too. Like, that's almost like a Catholic position, where church history plays a role in how the Bible is interpreted, as well as, like, ecclesiastical authority and how the Bible is interpreted. And based on those three levels, you kind of get what you have. I mean, that's not something that the evangelical church would affirm, but that does seem to be, like, something that they kind of hold to, in a way. Yeah. Because... um, and And my point is just that, like I think there should be really a another reformation in the evangelical church, and I think part of it comes from critically looking at these texts again and realizing things like Paul didn't write Ephesians and Colossians, and here's the reasons why we say that we We list these examples, and if we think that's true, then that then we have to adjust our theology somehow, um whether we differentiate between those two, I mean, it really, I guess it doesn't matter that much for evangelicals because they think all of the Bible is telling the same message, so they wouldn't differentiate between the message between Paul and Peter and James anyway. Um, But I think that, like, it's important who wrote the book. It's important to say, when you're talking about Colossians and Ephesians, to say, Paul said this, or the author of Ephesians or Colossians said this. And there's a difference to that. One is saying it's a figure that we know that the Church affirms, and the other is recognizing that we don't really know who wrote this. And I just think that is an important distinction.
0: Yeah, I um, picked up a Catholic Bible, and I read they have an introduction to the authors of each book, and it, it heavily cast doubt on the authorship of Ephesians. Um uh, you can probably tell that I've studied more about Ephesians than Colossians. <laughs> but um, yeah, it heavily uh, cast doubt on the authorship of Ephesians, something I would not find in any Bible in the church I grew up in, and the evangelical in the Protestant world. But um, Ben, I thought that was a great point you made, and about how evangelicals really want their cake and eat it too they want to say no we don't go by church tradition we we go by the words of the bible and then but when it comes down to well how do you determine if it's uh genuine a genuine letter of paul it's like well the church the tradition of the church has held this forever it's like well wait a second i thought that's what you were throwing out and when you go back to martin luther i've mentioned this in previous episodes he was he was kind of doing what you were talking about. I mean, that was the Reformation. It, it, he was the start of the first Reformation, the Protestant Reformation, and he's saying he he was doing that to a degree. He he was going in and saying, "Well, I don't think this is genuine. I don't think this should be in the Bible," and I and this is genuine. This should be in the Bible. And you're right. I think that that actually would be a very helpful exercise for the modern church to go through now. To ha- and it would really get. I think help get them away from this stark fundamentalism that has really um, caused a lot of suffering in the church I mean the role of women comes to mind we, we've done two episodes on that and how the um, you know some of the fake letters of Paul are some of the harshest words of uh, against women in the entire Bible and we'll get into that later in Bible versus Bible but uh, yeah I thought that was a really good point you made it's like Okay is it church tradition or not? and if it's not, then all of this should be up for discussion
1: and I think it's like sort of a myth that there's this single tradition that's running through. I mean we always we talk about early Christianity because I think there's it's even more mythalized um that there's this idea that like there was this proto orthodoxy that comes right from the Galilean Jesus movement right into the first Greek Christians, and then is preserved um all through time, right, like the same message always from Jesus to us, there was like a line, and there may be like divergent streams um around it, but there is like some invisible church that 's always been present, um, but the reality is there was a bunch of conflict always over who was right and who was wrong, and different ideas about interpretations, even in the earliest church um so once they start tracing I mean like I saw James White talking about um Augustine and having to draw a distinction between the two Augustines. One is like the ecclesiastical Augustine that is like concerned with church authority, and the other one is the Augustine of uh saved by faith through grace. And it's like, okay, so but you're like at that point you're not claiming Augustine. You're claiming one thing that Augustine said. And like I just don't understand how this mechanism works tracing it, tracing back this like invisible line of tradition. And I think like the the reality is it's just like much um, sloppier when you look at the actual history. And there's a lot of other factors besides just like, like, you know, this whole like uh, question of authorship really complicates the canon. Um, It was a big it was a big uh, emphasis in um, deciding what books should be affirmed, this like idea of apostolic succession was a big deal to the early church in establishing what books should be read as canon. Um, again, not like it, that it was all agreed upon by everyone at one given time. Um, now the idea of apostolic succession in the evangelical church is not accepted. I mean, um, but sometimes it is when it comes to affirming the disciples were martyred or uh, that Polycarp knew the uh, disciples of Jesus. Like, it's just weird the things that are accepted and not accepted and the kind of, like, unconscious um, appeal to tradition that happens in evangelicalism. Like, systematic theology is just, like, part appeal to tradition and tradition's understanding of the text. Like, it's just what it is.
0: Yeah, and there's so much historical information out there that it's kind of easy to create your own roadmap to whatever endpoint you want, to whatever theology you want, and that's what, you know, Christians do in every denomination in the world. Um, And I think that's what they do here. So you take, you can use Catholic talking points if it backs up your ultimate point, and when it doesn't, you don't. I did want to get to some other quotes from... um, Some scholars that think that uh, it likely was authored by Paul, talking about Ephesians here. Uh, This is John Stott. He says, The evidence against Paul's authorship of Ephesians is not decisive. After all, there is no dispute about the authenticity of Ephesians within the early Church. It was known and cited by the Apostolic Fathers. So like we mentioned earlier, uh, that's true, but there's a lot of um, Apostolic Fathers that um, notably left it out, uh, as if they didn't have any awareness of it at all. So I, I think the point is, yes, once it was in circulation, it seems pretty quickly to have been accepted as a genuine letter of Paul. But the point is, like, when was it found? What, you know, how come it didn't even exist um, earlier? In, uh, and, and that's, I think, what the real question is.
1: Yeah, Raymond Brown brings up uh an interesting point when it comes to like the ecclesiology of um Ephesians and Colossians that they're they seem to have like a higher church ecclesiology. Again, like they're starting that that beginning of an uh emphasis on church leadership and um submitting to authority. And so I can see political, social reasons why the Church Fathers would um, affirm those books and um, like them as they're starting to build the authority of the Catholic Church in its like proto-stages. Let me get to a couple others. Gordon Fee says
0: while Ephesians does differ in style from some of Paul's other letters, it still displays characteristic Pauline themes and theological emphasis. The differences can be explained by the unique occasion and purpose of this letter. And that's interesting because we really don't know the occasion and purpose of the letter. So he's saying that, I assume he's saying that uh, if we knew that, it would shed light on on why we do see these differences. I've heard it said that Ephesians was a kind of a collection of Pauline sayings, maybe some short letters that had been collected uh, and grouped together into what, is, what we now have as Ephesians. Again, this is all total speculation, um, but I, but I also think a lot of it is doing anything you can to make a genuine pauline um and coming up with any excuse that that gets you to that end point
1: yeah it's just like i mean i'm i don't want to push back on every point i actually like gordon fee um it, I, he's passed away at this point but um <clears throat> I, I just think that like the the genuine pauline letters that we have do address really specific things that are going on in the churches that he's talking to and the fact that these letters don't do that um you know i mean it's not decisive by any means but i think it is like a clue that it's not pauline and i think we've talked about that it uses paul's language um i think again it it references people and things that are in paul's genuine letter of philemon um I believe in Colossians. So I always he, said Philemon. Philemon, yeah, I'm sorry. Um and so I think that it's um it's definitely possible that this person was imitating Paul's style because he had access to some of Paul's letters, but there's a difference in the way that he uses Paul's language too. The difference um that we've we've demonstrated um when are we saved? Uh, when are we risen with Christ? So um, I think that those differences are important to highlight. And Just using the same word, but using it in a completely different way um, doesn't mean that it's the same author.
0: So I just have one more um, from D.A. Carson, who says, the argument for later authorship based on stylistic differences is not conclusive. Paul was capable of adapting his writing style to different occasions and audiences. So to me this is um this comes down to probabilities. It's like yes, that's true any author can, you know, if you're writing to a different audience you might um say things in a different way or write in a different style. That's totally true. But just speaking about probabilities when a historian uh or a you know, a um critical scholar is reviewing the text, what's more likely that um Paul drastically changed his entire writing style for this letter um or that like many other uh, forged letters we find this is just belongs in that uh, group as well.
1: Yeah, that's what I was gonna say too. I mean, the problem is you could make that same argument uh, again for Third Corinthians. Maybe Paul's just changing his style, and it is a genuine letter. You know, like it just because it has later um, uses of languages. I mean, Paul's adaptable. Maybe he was uh, ahead of his time. Like. You have to have some standard that you're using. And um, I think evangelicals like tend to start with the idea that we should give these letters the benefit of the doubt. And I can understand that because that's what tradition has told them and that's what the church has told them. But um, once you understand just the cottage industry of forgeries that were going around and also like the political um, and social capital that you could get by, by writing in someone else's name— um, you know, this person like wanted to have their ideas uh, be on the level of Paul's ideas, and so you write a letter as Paul, um, and you can imitate Paul's language, and you're able to tweak Paul's ideas to your theological persuasion. Um and so I just think that there once you understand that that's not an uncommon thing that happens in the ancient world that's a common thing that's happening in early Christianity all over the place in letters that we don't have in our Bible so you like you really have to use that as a standard to gauge these letters, and a lot of this like really does sound apologetic, like oh, it is very different, it does sound like a different author, but this is the reason it's not, and that's like not i mean i yeah, anything is possible. I mean, Paul could totally have changed his writing style. It's possible, I guess, but like we're, we should be looking at this from a critical perspective.
0: Yeah, and like you said, if if we were talking about 3 Corinthians, they would have no problem saying, yes, this writing style means it's it was not written by Paul, And but they give special pleading to any canonical text, and I think that's fundamentally like an incorrect way to do history. Like the whole point is to say church tradition has said this for years and years, Um but but let's let's look at it with fresh eyes and do our own investigation and the other thing to understand is like why the church accepted certain books as being authoritative or or coming or being authentic from the they were not doing the type of uh, scholarship that is being done now they weren't looking they weren't mathematically looking at the number of characters in each sentence they weren't doing the types of research that's done now they the, the biggest reason That a book was determined to be authentic or not was does the theology say what we want it to say that's why the determination was made for many of these books um the pastoral epistles again comes to mind with this it's like oh well this says what we want it to say so it, it wasn't as much did paul write it or did paul not write it it was like is this is this getting us to the end point that we want to get to um and i think that that highlights the difference between an apologist and a historian. A historian will take Third Corinthians and Ephesians and Romans and put them all on the same plane and let's, let's analyze the language in these, um, you know, the, like the same for each. But the apologist says, no, these are in a special category because they've been canonized by the church, uh, which is something that the Bible itself doesn't even ask you to do. So I just find it kind of frustrating when you're listening to the arguments of apologists. And that's not to say that there isn't some genuine debate about Ephesians and Colossians um, as to the authorship. Like, I think I pretty squarely come down on the side that it is a pseudopigrapha, that it was not penned by the Apostle Paul. But there are some scholars who I respect who say that, uh, no, they think it probably is genuine. Um, and, you know, we can get into that. But as we go on in this series, we're going to get to, um, to some other books in the Bible that I think you really strain all credulity when you start claiming that it is genuine. There are some books that um, are very clearly forgeries that uh, scholars have known for many, many years, and only the most extreme evangelical apologist will claim otherwise.
1: Yeah, these are more of the sort of controversial um, or disputed, uh, books, Colossians and Ephesians definitely have their apologists who think that they're Pauline. And I think that you can be earnest on either side of the debate too. Like, um, like John, I think that I, I actually was not immediately convinced that Ephesians and Colossians were not by Paul, um, but became convinced over like the course of hearing the different arguments. Um, i think that there are people who think that they're genuine um i think the important thing is to have some sort of um you know a standard that you can judge and uh make some sort of a judgment about these books and i think that um i just again just want to like problematize the idea of like tradition being a standard or the canon being a standard because those things are much more complicated than most people at a uh, ground level um, think. And I also just think that it's important to recognize the um, that if we do have uh, books in the Bible that are not written by Paul, we should um, at least be honest about that and not just attribute to Paul things that are written in his name.
0: Yeah, and there'll there'll be a much bigger discussion about just the notion of canon in general about i mean the reason a lot of christians will defend the authenticity is simply because it is in the bible Um, but that kind of to me ignores the problem that there were other books in the bible also that have been removed Um, books that you know in the early centuries of the church were used as scripture by the church that later um, generations came along and said, no, we don't think this is authentic. And and Christians have no problem saying, yeah, The Shepherd of Hermes is not uh, an authentic, um, inspired book. However, anything that's in the canon that they grew up with absolutely is. And to me, that's just like a fundamental like contradiction of of philosophy and how you're viewing the Bible. And I think just pointing this out to me, Ben, I don't know about you, but the idea that there are forgeries in the Bible—you know—growing up in the church, when I when I first learned about this as a as a young adult, man, I mean, it was shocking. I had never heard anything like this. I had never never heard anyone say that before. I had never even like thought about that concept because to me, of course, you know, the Paul wrote this. Like it was that's what I've been taught my entire life, and it it really is kind of a shocking notion to think that, um, hey, maybe the 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 person that's claiming to be writing this is not who they claim to be.
1: Yeah, I think that um, I totally agree. I mean, even like in college, like we used to joke about Hebrews being written by Paul, um, and and like now it's such a ridiculous thing to even think about because it's so the language is so different and it's like so clearly not Paul. And almost every scholar agrees that it's not Paul. Um, but. Authorship by the apostles was really taken seriously and was a concept that was like super important. Um, and I do think that it's shocking to think that there's, I mean, it's a deceptive practice to uh do a forgery, it was in the ancient world, it is in the modern world, and to be writing in the name of apostles. I mean, uh, one of the things I think that John and I have been emphasizing is sort of this like struggle for authority that existed in the early church and um, you still see a struggle for authority and these texts um, are used as tools to have authority. So there's a reason that people want to keep them around today and there's a reason people were affirming them back then and there was a reason that people wrote them in other people's names. It was because it gave you social capital and uh, authority to say you were the Apostle Paul, or to have, to wield a book that agrees with your theology that was written by the Apostle Paul, or to say that you were in the line of the Apostle Peter. Um, those things were all ways to um, put a stamp on your own theological views, and so it's an important thing to remember, but the idea that we have forgeries in the Bible for an evangelical I think is just a shocking concept, but one that they should really examine, um, again, I think that it's like totally fine to not um, think that these books are are forged, but I think that it really, you should examine it really critically and closely because I think there are major differences. You have to figure out, well, which Paul is right? Is that the Paul that says we're already raised, or is that the Paul that says we'll be raised with Christ at the end? Um, You know, that's just a question like I don't know if that matters for your salvation, but it seems important to me. I mean, it was a whole emphasis of Paul's, part of Paul's letter to the Corinthians. Like, these things are important.
0: Yeah, and I just, something you hinted at in there um, that I want to say here at the end. Uh, A lot of Christians will, like, some Christians might concede that, okay, maybe Paul didn't actually write this. Um, However, it was a common practice and it was completely acceptable for someone to be writing, like, maybe a follower of Paul to later write down um, some of what they think is Pauline philosophy and to put it in his name and that would have been an accepted uh, policy, that would have been an accepted practice back then. Uh, but as it turns out, that's not true. It was not an accepted practice. It was viewed as deception, and it was uh, condemned even even back in the first century. So that does not seem to hold up.
1: Yeah, Christian apologists, I think, like to muddy that water and sort of say, oh, it's fine if he was writing in the name of Paul. That was like what people did back then. It was a way to show Paul honor and not like, really. Okay, well, then I'm going to do it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> and then you should put it in the Bible.
1: Yeah, or let's just uh-huh. put 3 Corinthians in or right. the letters to Paul and Seneca, like you know. Yeah. Uh at a certain point you have to be able to say we have forgeries in this person's name and so therefore I mean I think that that's like I wanted to bring this up before like the to Christians have a tendency, Christian apologists of saying like we should start with the assumption that these books are genuine and are genuinely by the person that wrote them. And I actually think that that's not a good assumption to start with. When, once you understand that there were forgeries all over the place in these people's names. Amen. So once you start to think that there are forgeries by Paul out there um, that were floating around in the early Church and in early Christianity, then you have to start saying, okay, even the ones that we have that say they're written by Paul, we shouldn't just assume.
0: So, yeah, I was conversing with a friend of mine, a Christian friend, who we were talking about this, and I said exactly what you just said. I said, well, there were uh, other letters from Paul, from Peter, you know, that purport to be from Paul and Peter that are not in the Bible. And um, I had to debate with this person who was denying that that's true and saying... That's not true. We don't have anything in the name of Paul, anything in the name of Peter. And I was like, this is just a factual question here. Just like Google it. It's uh, pretty (laughs) like uh, I'm not making that up. Like there we have a lot of that. And just knowing that fact alone, you're right. Like, okay, then what are the implications of that? Then like, how do we know what's in our Bible is not basically one of those documents. And um, like, I think it's really interesting. I, I believe it's the apocalypse of Peter Um, which is a non-canonical book forged in the name of Peter. But some scholars think, based on the writing style alone, that whoever wrote the Apocalypse of Peter probably wrote 2 Peter. And, and almost uh,
1: made it into our Bible, I think.
0: Right. Well, it did. So, Apocalypse of Peter almost made it into the Bible, and that's a really interesting conversation as, as to uh, why it's not now in the Bible. But no. But I think that's really interesting. It's very possible that whoever was forging in the name of Peter for the Apocalypse of Peter very well may have written Second Peter, um, which is in the Bible. So, but that we'll get to that when we when we go down that road. We've gone quite a long time on these. Uh, I was hoping, Ben, we could get into a quick Bible versus Bible. What do you think? Let's do it. And now it's time for Bible versus Bible. This is Bible versus Bible, the segment where we take two Bible verses that seem on the surface contradictory, and we analyze it and break it down and try to determine if it is an actual contradiction. So today we're going to talk about something that is an issue in the church even to this day. We've talked about it a lot on previous episodes. We did, um, I think, a couple of episodes on the role of women in the church. And um, we're going to highlight that here to determine if this is a contradiction. And I think it'll be relevant to the discussion, discussion of forgeries in the New Testament also, because we're dealing with something that comes from a genuine letter of Paul and something that comes from what most scholars believe is not a genuine letter is a forgery so um, can women be church leaders well um, according to the book of Acts they can because you have Priscilla she was a servant of the church she expounded unto him the way of God it says in Acts 18 26 you have Phoebe uh, in Romans the letter of Paul uh mentioned as a deaconess um and you have junia who is an apostle and that's also from romans romans 16 7 of of note among the apostles but according to um paul in first timothy um they cannot be leaders in the church because paul says let the woman learn in silence with all subjection but I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. So, um, you know, we've talked on that previous episode uh, about how some people were so upset about um, this, this woman apostle in, uh, in Romans that they changed the name from Junia to Junius, they actually changed the uh, translation to make it a male name to say, no, this was just a man, Um, but that's clearly not what this is. It's talking about a woman. Um, So is this a contradiction? I think it's a contradiction of teaching. I think think the same Paul either drastically changed his mind later in life and totally went from someone that was very accepting of women uh, in the churches or, and then later in life changed his mind and completely turned against it, or uh, it's what most scholars say that someone writing in the name of Paul wrote 1 Timothy because he wanted to um, tamp down women's role in the church.
1: Yeah, I also think it's a contradiction. Um, I think that it's very important to um, recognize Paul's reasoning Um, For in Corinthians, um, when he's talking—I or mean, he talks about it in Galatians, he talks about it in Corinthians—the equality that comes in the body of Christ. Um, The pneuma, the spirit, is given to everyone, to each individual person. Um, In the body of Christ, there's total equality amongst believers— uh, to where there's no discernible difference between Jew or Gentile, uh, slave or free, male or female, um, and so if that's the foundation of Paul's uh, equality in Christ is because each believer gets the the Spirit of God, then it seems that it doesn't seem consistent with what Paul would be teaching. Um, to say that women can't be um, in positions of authority. And again, it goes against um, what we have spoken clearly in a genuine Pauline letter in Romans 16. He talks about, uh, he names a few women leaders, uh, Phoebe and Junia, but even more in addition to that. Um, And um, we just know that in the early Christian movement, it was... um, Oftentimes, uh, they were meeting in the houses of uh, women that had money. It may have been uh, women that were part of the initial Jesus movement in Galilee, at least according to the traditions that come in our gospels. Um, so it seems, and it, and even the um, the traditional um, teachings that John and I have talked about. Um, the like, teaching from Matthew 19 about eunuchs, or um, the uh, you must uh, hate your family, um, the members of your family are going to be your enemies, all these things sort of speak to a um, disillusion of um, the family structure that was happening, um, and sort of the way that maybe the Jesus movement was looked down upon. Um, by having women in uh, positions of authority and a bunch of unmarried men that were sort of like roaming the countryside. Um, And so at a certain point, that tension uh, maybe started to split and more of a patriarchal um, authoritarian wing um, decided to clamp down on... These women that were in positions of authority. Um, And I think we see that starting to happen in um, the household codes in Ephesians, and I think we definitely see it in the pastorals. Um, So yeah, I think it's a a contradiction that runs through the New Testament and um, a a big uh, point of controversy in the early Jesus movement.
0: Yeah, and I think it's important to highlight this is why it's important to recognize um, pseudopigrapha for what it is, because think about you. Know, when people, you know, oftentimes you'll hear evangelicals say, "Well, any of the books that are contested, what would you really lose?" You know, they're not really the important things. Like, what would you really lose if 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 the pastorals were removed? Well, the the way women have been treated in the church because of these books um, can't be understated. It's been hugely influential on the entire church going all the way back, these books um, that Paul didn't even write. And uh, so it would make a drastic difference, or at least I'm not saying that Christians should throw them out of the Bible. Um, I think that you should have a more academic understanding of the authorship as opposed to just saying, like, the, the Apostle Paul writing under the perfect inspiration of God wrote this down, and these are the same, this is the same as the words of Jesus themselves. No, this is somebody trying to assert themselves that thought that women were becoming too involved with the church, and were try, was trying to tamp that down. I think that's pretty clear. I do want to say that it's not as clear-cut necessarily as we laid it out, because you also have, um, in a genuine letter of Paul— you have Paul saying, I do not permit a woman to speak, and that is in um, 1 Corinthians. Now, many scholars think that that's um, an addition, that that verse was an interpolation added in um, for this exact reason, added in later, and there is some manuscript evidence, I believe, to support that. I know Bart Ehrman um, holds that view, and that makes a lot of sense, because just before that verse in 1 Corinthians you have Paul talking about women having an active role and speaking in the church and then all of a sudden you have this verse but they're not allowed to speak. So it really does seem like a, a scribe came and and wrote in the wrote in the margin somewhere I do not permit a woman to speak and that that got passed down. We don't have a we don't have an answer to that but I I did want to add that in there to say it's not as clear as we may have laid it out originally.
1: Yeah, I mean I think part of um what we're trying to say too is that in a lot of these things um just an awareness that it's not as clear cut is better than pretending that it's really clear cut. Um <laughs> because there is ambiguity. Like there there is definitely ambiguity and even um even really good scholars will disagree on some of this stuff. So it's not as simple as just saying um this is what it says. Or that this is just a forgery. I think it's like a conversation. Um, But the residual effect of people taking a hard line of keeping women from positions of ministry um, or positions of authority in the church has been a big problem. I mean, uh, the Southern Baptist Conference just had a huge uh, meeting this summer uh where there was this whole thing was a controversy uh with some churches ordaining women and they almost split and there was a giant vote and really a bunch of Christian nationalists were mobilizing around the uh goal of keeping women from mini- ministry and sort of dragging up the old uh pro slavery uh history of the Southern Baptist Convention so it's like this stuff is not just, doesn't just exist in a vacuum either. It's also like a big problem in the real world. Um, now, if those same Christian nationalists would realize that like they should be not completely certain what the text says either. Um, I think that's a better position to hold. Like we should all just be a little bit um, understanding that there's some interpretive give uh push and pull. And that again, it's, the text is not inerrant and our interpretation is, um, always kind of a, um, a flexible thing as you're trying to figure out what the text says, what it meant, um, and, and what's genuine and what's not genuine.
0: So, yeah, I mean, whether it's a, um, a forgery or not, and both of both me and you think it, think it is a contradiction. And, um, you know, when people say, Well, when there's differences, what, it, what importance does it really make? I can't stress enough, this is a huge problem. This, this create these verses here in the pastoral epistles have uh, made 50% of the population unable to serve as church leaders, uh, and definitely in the Catholic Church and in many evangelical and conservative churches, also. Thankfully, that's starting to change a little bit. Um, but I think that, um, it has, you know, these things have really big implications. And um, I, don't, I think it's important to recognize these differences as opposed to just ignoring them or pushing them under the rug or saying, no, that's not really a problem at all.
1: Yeah, absolutely agree. Um, it's, it's important to, I, th- I think that's the first step, is to recognize that there's a problem um before you can even do anything else to say like wait a second these are not saying the same thing um and that creates an issue um and then where you go from there um is important too but absolutely
0: all right ben why don't we end it there i know uh, we're eager to get into some of these other books and talk about why uh, scholars think they may not be uh genuine to the to the claimed author but um why don't we end this show with a quote do you have one
1: sure all right. Uh, this is from Thomas Paine. One good schoolmaster is of more use than a hundred priests. I like that one. <laughs> Me too. All right. Good night, everyone. Have a good night, all. The Skeptics Bible Project is a John and Ben production with intro music by John Lobker Support us on Patreon Ooh. at. Patreon.com slash Skeptics Bible Project and follow us on all social media platforms at Skeptics Project. Got questions or comments? Email us at Skeptics Bible Project at gmail.com.